be my own man, sustain my own crops, maintain my own plot. Greetings, family. My name is uh, Brother Kima. My name is Mark White. And we want to welcome you to the Red All Masterclass series, a series of uh, lectures, of online podcasts to share information with the community about health, wellness, diet, and environment. We're simply seeking to inspire our community to retire and to do better for ourselves, to uh, go beyond where we've been before, to create the type of community that we would like to see as opposed to the type that's being imposed upon us. Let's be masters, let's ascend, and get to a better place. Brett King Karen serves as the City of Boulder's Senior Policy Advisor for Climate Action and leads the city's Natural Climate Solutions Team. He is also the director of the Natural Climate Solutions Initiative, a national initiative to expand natural climate solutions nationally that is co-sponsored by the Urban Sustainability Directors Network. Brett's primary responsibility is the ongoing evolution of the city's climate action initiatives. Over the past two years, Brett has coordinated cross-department, multi-stakeholder efforts in soil regeneration and sequestration research on agricultural lands and an urban forestry expansion campaign at a local, regional, and national level. Prior to working for the city, Brett worked across the Western U.S. in community-based sustainable development working in both rural, Native American, and other communities in transition across the Western U.S. He also is a co-founder of four nonprofits and two for-profits, including the Rogue River Institute for Ecology and Economy, Veterans Green Jobs, and Community Energy Systems. So um, I'm Kill Foreman. I'm the CEO of Environmental Health Watch, and we've been working on healthy homes, healthy people, healthy communities for a few decades now. We really push the healthy homes movement, but I think we understand intersectionality. We understand that it has to be both grassroots and top-down decision makers, along with the people who are being mostly impacted by our community, our climate, and housing hazards specifically but also building capacity in communities to speak the same language, understand data. So I feel it was our role at Environmental Health Watch to really work in communities of color around this idea about sustainability. And we touched on climate, but our work really centers around tangible solutions that make sense to people so they can participate in the change. So for you, and I just happened to uh, fall into this environmental world I didn't seek it out, but now that I've got into it and, and got to know the people that are impacted, it's charged me to kind of go further. So tell us about yourself and what attracted you to the environmental sector. Well, I grew up in Wyoming. There aren't a whole lot of us. It's the least populated state in the country. Largest city in Wyoming when I was growing up was 50,000 people. So most of us lived in relatively rural settings. And my dad was a fisheries biologist for the state, and so I had the good fortune that back then when you could still go with your parents to work, and I went out with him in lakes and streams and mountain communities for a long time, and it just kind of imbued in me that sense of wonder and appreciation and enjoyment with that natural world. But at the same time, my mom was uh, 
kind of a crusader quietly. She was a piano teacher and house cleaner, but she always felt like we should be doing something useful and meaningful in the world. And so my life has always been this kind of weaving together of this love and desire to be in a right relationship with the living world. And then also like, how do we, how do we live as human beings rightly together? And so I think I've done things that kind of move back and forth between like working on how we're going to do sustainable forestry versus how we're going to do sustainable community development, and then looking for that intersection between those two. I see you have some experience with the Native American community. How has that impacted your work around the sustainability of natural environment as an environmentalist? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think very few, if any, of my Native American friends would call themselves environmentalists because that's kind of that separation between a human being and the living world and their cultures were all about how humans were a part of that larger community. And so I think that's one of the the things I have felt like I've tried to learn as I was in relationship to those communities is more about how we live in as a part of a larger community and seeing the community as not just being human beings as being this much larger. And that's that's an ongoing process and I think um, we're trying to rediscover what that looks like in cities, in rural areas. And so I really appreciate your pathway into this work where what I hear you say is I started from the issues and concerns of my community and then began to recognize through that work that the health of the environment is also critical to their health too. And that's where I think there's a lot of us, as you say, intersecting and converging around this work. Great. Thank you. So why is the climate discussion and climate action so important? Yeah, you know, I want to say that I think that the climate movement has done a terrible job of framing its efforts for several decades. You know, it started, and part of it is because it started in this kind of very science-based analysis of what was causing climate change. And and frankly, that, that whole discussion was really dominated by the geophysical sciences, it wasn't actually, the life sciences and the life scientists weren't very involved in that discussion. And so we got off on this whole tangent of it's all about greenhouse gases and this thing that you can't see, you can't smell, you can't touch, it's completely abstract. But I think what's really been emerging just in the last couple of years is the recognition that the atmosphere is not a geochemical machine that's being governed simply by how much CO2 goes in and see how much CO2, it's actually a biologically mediated dynamic that the living world is actually largely influencing and that we can't actually stabilize the climate unless we regenerate so much of the living world that we have degraded through the many different activities that we're a part of. And of course, it's interesting to recognize we have been degrading human communities as we have been degrading the living world. And then in fact, I think the first steps towards climate destabilization were when we started displacing indigenous and traditional peoples because they were maintaining those rich, vibrant, multidimensional ecosystems that were helping to stabilize climate. And so what I I think now is really clear is that we're not going to build our way out of of the climate crisis by creating some big carbon-sucking machines. The only way we're going to stabilize climate is if we mobilize millions and millions of people to go out and do that very meaningful work of restoring the living world. Yes, we have to transition off of fossil fuels. Of course, that's going to be a part, but it's only a small part of what we need to do. And I think that's actually good news 
because it means that there's a lot of meaningful work that needs to be done. But we now have to build an economy around that. We have to support people doing that work of retrofitting homes, of planting trees, of restoring these landscapes and these wetlands and these ecosystems, because that's what's ultimately going to make our world safe and livable. Thank you. Because I remember just reading about this new way of thinking uh, when Van Jones uh, wrote the book Green Collar Economy. And what was clear to me, there's been a history of conservationist environmentalism versus environmental justice or environmental racism and almost like they're on two separate tracks and there's no way to get to a true sustainable solution by leaving folks out or not considering um, environmental justice and the ideas about right was right and people. And so how do you see that evolving or, or where do you see we might still be stuck in this kind of separation because when I was starting to work in communities of color in Cleveland, it was almost as if the sustainability movement that was taken off did not want to talk about race or environmental justice in that way. They left that out almost intentionally. Yeah, it it's almost like that same dichotomy of humans versus nature of like which humans versus which humans like yeah, the environmental movement has been dominated by basically white middle-class people for all these years who've been concerned about this abstract place of nature that they want to go and recreate. And yeah, that's still all very important. But I think what we're starting to realize is we are a part of this living world. And if we have to take an active role in helping to support and restore that, and the only way we're going to do that is through focused, thoughtful, effective human activity. And we have to stop warehousing humans and basically thinking that some technical specialist is going to go out and do all this fixing of the world and everybody else is just going to be the sort of passive recipient of this. In fact, recognize that there are indigenous communities, there are communities of color, there are communities all over the world that know how to do this work, but we have not valued it. We have not created an economy around that. And so I think What's brought me to Cleveland is when I see the remarkable amount of, of community capital and organizations like yours and Riddall Green Partnership and Western Reserve Land Conservancy who are all trying to figure out how do we help human beings be in a direct productive relationship with this world. And so there's so much work to be done. Now we need to build an economy around it so that we can pay people living wages and asset building you know, livelihoods to do that work. Thank you so much. So since you mentioned Ridolf, I wanted to know what your relationship to Ridolf was and what projects are you currently working on together? You know, it's funny. I was organizing a gathering at the Rockefeller Retreat Center in New York back in 2019, and we were trying to explore this question of what is the relationship of urban communities with natural climate solutions and just as we had invited everybody, like all these eminent specialists from all over the world, and I got a call from one of my colleagues, and they said, you know, I was just at this gathering in Aspen, and I met this guy named Kima Durden from this organization called Ridall Green Partnership. And I don't know, but you just have to invite them. I, there's just something going on there. So I called up Ridall, and I said, well, I've been told that you should come to this gathering, so is there anybody that could come? And so Mark White was sent, and it's so funny because... When I walked into that retreat center after getting off the plane and coming in, I was going to sit down and have a meal. The chair that was open was sitting next to Mark White. And I swear that within five minutes of talking to Mark, I said to myself, 
I have got to figure out what's going on in Cleveland. There is just this amazing sense of purpose and mission and activity. And so it was that that really, frankly, caused me to kind of fall in love with the whole Cleveland context and Riddall. And, and so since that time, we've just been looking for ways to work together. So two years ago, we got an almost million dollar natural uh, resource conservation grant to start putting in a bioenergy biochar unit, which literally today is being installed out in one of the greenhouses in Riddall. We've been working together with a Navajo community that's doing something similar. We had a retreat in which Mark and the Riddall folks were representative down on Navajo earlier this year. We're looking at how we actually work together to start integrating natural climate solutions, urban forestry work with the work that you're doing around healthy homes. So it just, it's just been a, a beautiful journey that I watch continue to unfold. Awesome. And I think that a lot of us here in Cleveland are very collaborative. For decades, we've collaborated, partnered. I think sometimes we got to find that right spot where we have the funding, the resources, the people, the political will to understand how we can scale the work in a way that matters um, for folks. So do you have any final thoughts? Anything that I didn't ask you that you feel is very important to highlight or discuss? Yeah, but just the last thing I would add is Boulder, Colorado, where I live, is a part of an organization internationally called the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. And this is kind of a frankly, a little bit of a self-important group of all these major international leading cities, Oslo, Copenhagen, Rio, Fukuoka, uh, 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 Fukushima, and a whole bunch of other places. But I genuinely believe that Cleveland is the next generation of what climate action needs to look like because of your history of collaboration and your your serious efforts to involve communities and equity as a centerpiece of that. And I know that your mayor, Mayor Bibb, has been actively positioning Cleveland to be recognized in that international arena as a place that's really working on the leading edge of this. And I believe that's right. And I look forward to supporting Cleveland and all the organizations here to be a part of that leadership of a new generation of climate and community action. Well, thank you, Brett. And congratulations for being our first Masterclass guest. And so, ladies and gentlemen, Brett, Ken, Karen, um, what, how can people get in touch with you? Or do you have a website or that you like to promote? Uh, naturalclimate.solutions is our website. Um, but, uh, yeah, you can always reach me also through the Riddle, folks. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kim. <laughs>